Oklahoma, where the winds go rolling down the plains. Are you here? I think so. Are you ready? I'm not in Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing chapter 11 of The Last Battle. This chapter is called The Pace Quickens. I am a wise and deeply introspective eagle by the name of Farsight, who suddenly has a lot of perspective and is just, you know, really sharing his thoughts about this situation also known as Kristen. And this is my co-host. I'm a talking dog. How can I help? <laughs> Hello. How, how, how? How, how, how? How, how, how? Also known as Chris. You're also the most lovely thing that's happened this entire night. Oh, thank you. According to the book. Cool. Hello. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Um, this is a this is an interesting chapter. It's a you've heavy a, chapter. You've had a lot of feels about this. Oh, one. this is a very heavy chapter. There's lots of feelings. There's lots of emotions. There's also like random sh- perspective shift into Farsight's head for a, a bit of it, where there's lots of just like, and Farsight thought this, and Farsight thought that. Did we read the same chapter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we read the same chapter. Like you, ha- you understand. You, you read about the dogs. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get a lot of Farsight's perspective. Okay, but... there's just like spontaneously like two, three sentences that are all just about what Farsight thought about the situation. Yeah, I asked them, but anyway, how do we? Uh, other than other than your confusion about what I'm bringing up, um, how do we actually start the podcast? Well, I, I had a question to pose to start this off. Do you? Um. So if there are these two guys on top of a hill and one of them threw the other one into like a yawning mouth of darkness to be met with a horrific murderous demon, that'd be pretty messed up, right? Yeah. (laughs) That said, though, (laughs) nobody actually knows what's in there. Yep. Yeah, that'd be pretty messed up. (laughs) Anyway... So, yeah, it's a it's a inside joke that I think one person listening to this podcast will understand. Yep. Anyway, so we start this by summarizing the chapter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. cool. That's what I thought. We pick out five sentences from the chapter and uh, use those to get a, you know, a good baseline going and summarize the chapter in its own words. Who would you like to read your sentences first, Kristen? Sure. I'll read my summary first. Cool. Go for it. All right. Here we go. Ahem. Then Tyrion rushed upon the wretched creature, picked it up by the scruff of the neck, and dashed back to the stable, shouting, Open the door! The enemy line, about half of Rishta's force, was now moving forward, and Tyrion had barely time to give his orders. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You would not have known from Tyrion's face that he had now given up all hope. The enemy had been reinforced. Okay. Uh, I thought that was going to happen where we don't have a single sentence in common. because We this don't? Is, you know, I totally expected you to use the Tyrion rushed forward no, sentence. We don't have a single sentence in common, which this is a this is a hard chapter to summarize in five sentences. I really struggled with this one, and there's stuff I wanted to include that I didn't. Yeah. So yeah, here are mine. Go and drink your own medicine shift, said Tyrion, and hurled the ape through into the darkness. Every single talking dog in the whole meeting, there were fifteen of them, came bounding and barking joyously to the king's side. Then Eustace came to his senses and saw the Calarmines scampering back to their friends. They had just begun to hope that they might win that night, but it would all be over with them if new enemies appeared. Another body of Calarmines had heard Rishta's signal and were coming to support him. So there you go. Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like we got a few of the same main points in. Like, we both got 
shift getting thrown in and the Calamine reinforcements coming. Yeah. Uh, this is a battle chapter, if it's, you weren't aware. What? Crazy. I didn't think there would be any battles in this book. I, I mean, their title of it is um, The Last Battle. Uh, anyway, so we've but had... But is a- this the last battle? Oof, probably not. Because this is chapter 11 of 16. And since the pace is going to quicken in this chapter, as I've been told by the title. Crazy. We we really should be expecting things to wrap up really quickly here. So maybe this is the last battle. But also in our experience with C.S. Lewis's battles tend to be like one quarter of a chapter yeah. um, at, at a time. And that's the whole battle. Anyway, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, this would be a weird last battle. Yeah. It's like 30 Calamines versus like um, a small force of like, hey, here's Tyrion and Jill and we'll we'll get into it. Can um, I can I influence your you by giving the simple information of the title of the next five chapters though? Sure. All right. Chapter 12 is through the stable door. Okay. Finally go in there. Chapter 13 is how the dwarfs refuse to be taken in. Okay. Chapter 14 is Night Falls on Narnia. Chapter 15 is Further Up and Further In. And Chapter 16 is Farewell to Shadowlands. So there isn't another battle happening anywhere here, this seems. Uh, It's all just consistent battle. Or, you know, this is is it. And the next five chapters are all endings. And he's taking a page from Tolkien's book. Yep. Where he's just like, this needs five different endings to the story. Probably. Um, Cool. So anyway, there's a lot that happens in this chapter. It is a, it's a pretty pitched battle. So in their last chapter, we ended with the king and Jill and Eustace and, uh, and Jewel and Puzzle and everybody jumping out. And I say everybody. Poggin and Farsight might as well name the seven people. Yeah, I mean, if there are only seven of them and you're going to say five of their names, come let's on, ig- don't leave the dwarf out. Let's just ignore Poggin. Yeah. Um, so everybody jumps out in front of the stables. They surprise the Tarkans and Shift, who are standing there. Uh, this one immediately picks up there, where Rishta is just like Ermagerd, dodges out of the way, retreats into the crowd, and starts calling his forces to him. Um, Shift is not so lucky. Yeah. He gets surprised. Probably he's still drunk. Um, and... I mean, he's been complaining about his head this entire evening, so I'm sure he's at minimum hungover. Yeah. Uh, and he immediately gets picked up by Tyrion and thrown into the stable. Uh Uh-huh. We don't know what happens to him. However, what we do here is... Uh, he gets thrown into the stable. There's a blinding greenish-blue light shown out from inside of it. The earth shook, and there was a strange noise, a clucking and screaming as if it were the hoarse voice of some monstrous bird. Yep. And we've had so. a monstrous bird physically described to us thus far that was identified clearly as Tash. Yeah. So who the heck knows uh, what's going to happen here? We'll see. Uh, if we ever see Shift again or hear from him again or if he's just, like, been eaten by some sort of uh, manifestation of Tash. Yep. Um, so that happens. Then Farsight, he does have a perspective here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tell us what Farsight thought. Uh, he sees, he is the one person that sees the face of Rishta Tarkan and realizes that he is just as surprised at what happened as everybody else. Yes, but, like, the phrasing on it specifically says... There he goes, thought Farsight, who has called on gods he does not believe in. How will it be with him if they have really come? Yeah. Um, and then, and then, shortly after, when when he's cr- crying out all of his orders, and Tyrion is calling to the mice, and we have all that. Shortly after that, we have another Farsight. Ha! Said Farsight to himself. So that is how he hopes to win Tash's pardon for his unbelief. That's what I'm talking about. There's these two sentences. One is just, one of them is dialogue of the thoughts of Farsight. And one of them is Farsight talking to himself. And it's just like, all of a sudden, we just have the inner workings of somebody else's mind. That's not one of the children. That's not the king. And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, he joined the party three chapters ago. Yeah. And we now finally have more than just his name mentioned. This is where we learn that Farsight is actually the narrator of the entire series. And uh, <laughs> he, he is the omniscient narrator because he can see further than anybody else. Uh, I see. Um, He's also apparently a rather long liver. <laughs> yep. So he shares his perspective. 
which kind of confirms my theory in the last chapter that uh, Rishta is surprised by what's all going on here. Yeah. Uh, with people going into the stable and what's happening. So Rishta is not aware that we still don't know what, what or who is in the stable. Correct. But based on the bird-like noises, we can probably assume it's whatever this thing was of Tash that we saw in the woods. Yeah. So we don't... Um, but, yeah. So somehow, Tash... I just want to paint this picture where, like, the great god of the Kalarmines, Tash, hiked his way in by himself. He's just like, you know, I'm just going to walk up. They're, they're calling my name up there. I'm going to show them what for. He decides to take a long walk from Kalarmine up through Narnia, stalks through the woods slips in there under the cover of night nobody sees him go into the stable and he's just like yep i'm just gonna sneak in and hang out in here well that said <laughs> we also have established very intently that they they don't believe when they see tash they don't believe that the ape will be able to see him or that anyone there will actually be able to see him in the same way that the kids in prince caspian couldn't see aslan yeah like that that they were able to see him for some reason but that the Narnians at the Stable Hill and the Calamines there wouldn't be able to see him. Yeah. So, who knows? Um, something definitely happened to Shift, though, inside yeah. the Stable. He got it. Uh, then a beautiful thing happens. First then time. a beautiful thing happens. So, we have Tyrion call for aid. Uh-huh. And the dogs, all of the dogs, every one of them comes rushing to his aid. Yep. And it was the most lovely thing. All and 15. I think and I think that it's important at that point to note, like, the stereotype of the loyal dog. Yeah. That the dog is rushing to the aid. And that, you know, you've been jumped on by a dog before. I have. It, it, sometimes when they're excited, it's hard to tell if they're attacking or not. <laughs> I'm shocked that none of them got hacked by one of these, by, by Tyrion's friends. Because, uh-huh. like, they ran up and fully jumped on the king. Well, they seemed happy. And they were running up yelling, how, to, how can we help, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we also have all of the little nibblers and gnars come. Uh, yeah, the bear and the boar, which, oh, yeah, yeah. which we, I don't even want to call it foreshadowing because they just said what was going to happen in the last chapter where Poggin was just like, well, I'm sure all the dogs will come and the bear and the boar as well. Yeah. Well, and the boar is the one that's, that he's jumping to the aid of. The boar is the one that they were about to force into the, into the stable. Yeah. And Tyrion jumped out to defend the boar. Yeah. Um, so we know the boar is feeling protected and aided in this moment. So, of course, he's going to come. But the bear I want to circle back to later when we get past some of the more intense moments of this. Because we have we have established that he's kind of dumb. Yep. And, and as that continues, it continues. Like, we have the bear come, yay. But, like... Much like our giants, uh, Wimbleweather and Rumblebuffin. Oh, yeah, much like our giants, Wimbleweather and Rumblebuffin. Thank you for reminding me. All of the big creatures are dumb. Yeah. Like, if they're large and faithful to Aslan, they're stupid. Yeah. Basically. I mean, that that is a motif that I was going to—I don't want to spend a lot of time getting into this, but it's something I might revisit during our wrap-up of this book or this series entirely. Um, However, yeah, we see very few examples of— creatures in the series who are a- allied with Aslan who are portrayed as intelligent. Like, we see the centaurs. Yeah. Like, anytime the centaurs show up, they are. Um, the badgers. Yeah. Arguably, I don't even want to say Reepicheep because Reepicheep's brave. Reepicheep's not dumb. Well, sometimes he does really dumb things. Yeah, but he's but, really intelligent in a martial sense. Like, he yeah. knows what he's doing in a fight. Yeah, but I feel like most of the time when we see examples of things that are cunning or intelligent, they are on the side opposite to Aslan. Yeah, like which, the cat, like yeah. Ginger Cat, yeah. Which I, I think is, or like the wolves that were uh, with the mm. queen in the first chapter. Yeah. Or like, um, you know, there's there's a few other examples of this, but I, I find that curious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a... very much kind of this idea of childlike, dumb, uneducated, let's get rid of schools, let's, like, yeah. hmm. There's this, almost this motif of anti-intellectualism, which I think is interesting because I know Lewis very much wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, Lewis was very into education and having people be well-rounded and well-read. Uh, it, so He wanted them to be, like, he... 
He frequently hearkened back to a different model of education, though, that was knowledge passed from one to a ne- to the next, yeah. rather than from a, an educational system that was implemented upon people. Yeah. So he did have a different idea of what education looked like. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time because we have a lot of other stuff to talk about in this chapter, but that's something I, I might want to circle back around to eventually yeah. um, as, a, as a motif for the series when we put together those. Um, so the bear and the boar come, all the little nibblers and dollars, all these tiny creatures that can't necessarily help in the battle. The the patter twigs and the reaper cheeps, if <laughs> yeah. you will. Yeah, no reaper cheap though. If only we had like brave mice here. Man, they could have turned the tide of this whole thing. Uh, and Tyrion asks where the horses are at, because he's just like, no, there's some horses here, where they be. Have the dwarves heckled yet? Um, no. Okay. <clears throat> I don't think so. Um, and they're just like, oh yeah, they're enslaved, they're tied up down by the river. Tyrion's like, all right, you tiny little things, go get them. Uh, find out if the horses are on our side. Get them up if, here. Yeah, get them if they're on our side. Um, and then they run off. Uh, and then, uh, this battle starts because Rishtatarkhan has regrouped and gathered his men and they have a line now and they charge in. Yep. All, all, what, 15 of his men and the, the two Narnian creatures with them? Yeah. Three, four. Yeah. I would like to point out in my artwork in the book of this saying there are definitely more than 15 Calormians here. I'd like to show you my, uh. Oh, wow. Yeah fascinating so that's uh maybe that's from later in the chapter when reinforcements show up but i was like yeah there's more than 15 in that picture for sure yeah um maybe unless the ones at the unless the ones at the back are dwarves i didn't actually count whatever um <laughs> look at you criticizing artwork without actually fully investigating yeah it. i know i i this is this is not a uh a narnian book illustration art review podcast but <laughs> except when it is really um, appreciate the fluidity with which you delivered that. Yep. <laughs> That's what I'm known for. Um, so he calls forth all his allies to basically push the... What are we calling this group with as a collective? Tyrion's friends, like the, the true Narnians. The friends of Narnia. Yeah. <laughs> push the friends of Narnia into the stable. Then we're going to light it on fire as an offer to Tash. And then we have another insight from your friend Farsight. Which I already read. But yeah. that's the one where he says... He hopes to win Tash's pardon yeah. for his unbelief. Uh, and then Tyrion is barking out orders for the people with him. He's just like, Jill, you're going to go back on the left and be arch- arching, archering, yep. bowing. What's, what's the present tense from, form of that verb? Shooting her bow and arrow. Shooting her bow and arrow. I, I thought there was like a better way to say that. Um, <laughs> she's going to be shooting. Yeah, she's going to be shooting. Um, you know, she's going to be joined by the dogs or the, the bear and the boar over there. Uh, he's going to be flanked with Poggin and Eustace, and the dogs are behind him, and et cetera, et cetera, And the cetera. dogs are going to run in after they engage and run among them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Eustace gets uh, terribly scared. He's never seen anything like this before, uh, despite having seen a dragon and a sea serpent and been a dragon, but we don't mention that. Well, I mean, I, one would argue that he hasn't actually seen a dragon so much as he's seen his own reflection as a dragon he's seen it oh he did see a live yeah. one yeah as it died yeah uh but nothing has scared him as much as this because there's the 15 calories we have a bull with them uh who doesn't get named but then we have slinky the fox and raggle the satyr mm-hmm. and uh i did want to point out that a satyr is on the calorie side i know it's not a fawn however it's um it is a similar creature yep so this what's this playing into the uh you know the order of tumness may have been uh, on the wrong side of history here oh yeah shocking <laughs> uh we'll have to we'll have to come back and revisit that um and then jill starts killing folk oh yeah she she shoots an arnian yep um so and a couple of calormines yeah calormine immediately falls uh, we have jill kill her man yep satyrs immediately down uh, and then there's... And Eustace realizes after the, the, and Eustace realizes after the, uh, heat of the battle has worn off a little bit that he probably killed a fox, but he doesn't know. Well, I do want to spend some time on this line. Uh, I mean, we have some, some deep 
uh, introspective from Eustace here. In this line, Eustace could never remember what happened in the next two minutes. Yeah. Like, uh, let's talk about the, you know, trauma of a child going into war. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, he has already killed somebody Yeah, in, in a in a two-to-two battle, but this is a full-blown blown battle and attack, yeah. and, like, he's never experienced anything close to this. Yeah, uh, definitely he's fighting for his life. Uh, there's allies falling around him, like, you know, Jill's off sniping people. There's a, the den of battle, and, like, he get, gets lost in it. Also, non sequitur here, but Lewis... Um, talks about a fever dream in the most awkward way possible. Oh, does he? When when you the, the kind of dream yeah. you have when your temperature's over 100 degrees. Yep. It was all like a dream. Parentheses. The sort you have when your temperature is over 100. There's a phrase for that. Yeah. We call it a fever dream. <laughs> yep. Cool. I just thought that was an interesting way of putting that. Yep. Uh then Eustace comes back and sees a bunch of people dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, fox is down. The That's bull is down. That's one way to write about a battle, instead of having to <laughs> you describe know, to describe how they went from tree to tree. Just imagine it being you know annoying, and yeah. instead of imagining a battle, just um, wipe the memory of your main character. Yep. Just be like, yeah, no, he didn't remember anything that happened. Period. Oh well, I got other stuff to he get. He came to. back to himself to see this person dead, this person dead, this group dead, this group retreating. Yeah. And getting these orders. Yeah. I really do feel like we had Tyrion call to the dwarfs before he sent off the Nars and Nibblers. Because we had the dwarfs yelling and being racial racial slur jerks. Yeah. Before this this particular bottle, I think. Uh or yeah. is it after yeah, we're gonna, after yeah. it's right after Yeah. Right after the battle. Um, anyway, so they won the first battle. Bull goes down, Fox goes down, Seder goes down. I like how we, we go through all the trouble of naming these critters that are an Oh, allied, just the two of them. Just Slinky yeah, and, uh... And Ravel and the uh, Bull. Yeah. That are allied with the Calarmines, and then two sentences later, they're all dead. Yep. Like, we, <laughs> we need to give them names to kill them. Unless they're a bull. Yeah. You do mention skipping through the battle, however... I do appreciate, since we've had long, drawn-out battle scenes in this series before. Where? Uh, in Prince Caspian. In uh, There was no long, drawn-out battle horse- scene. Well, There was descriptions of Wimbleweather crying after failing to help his people, and then there was a duel. I mean, I like the, the entire thing in uh, Horse and His Boy, where, like... This, every single shot's being called by the hermit being like, well, this is what's happening here, and this is what's happening here. Yes, where it's a, being described third person and not from the perspective of the kid who, like, yes. got knocked out in the middle of the battle. And and arguably, Lewis is bad at describing action. Yes. However, I, I do... I don't think he's necessarily <clears throat> bad at it. I think he's never tried to. <laughs> I think he doesn't have the opportunity. To, I don't think we can judge his ability to do it because we've never seen him try. I think it is worth pointing out, though, I think this is a unique perspective that he puts in here when he's just like, Eustace can never remember more what happens in the next two minutes. And for the most part, like, it's we're so... It's called a jump cut. Yeah. You can go ahead. I'll be quiet over here. Cool. I think we're very used to, in a lot of media, like, you know, in fantasy media, especially in things like Lord of the Rings, where we see these very long, drawn-out battle sequences... And, like, if you're familiar with, like, tabletop games, like, if you do combat and something like D&D, combat is a thing that takes an hour. Yes. Where, like, it's it very... Takes... Sorry. My point being, I think in a lot of fantasy, we're used to these very long, or battle being a long, protracted thing. And I think it's an interesting perspective to really get into it and be like, no, all these people died and all this stuff went down in the space of two minutes. Like, it's quick, it's violent, it's bloody, like you know, skirmishes like that happen, like, in the blink of an eye, and, like, people are just gone. Yes. And I think that perspective is is different and unique. I and mean, interesting. With, with your argument about D&D taking an hour, you take an hour to do yes. 12 seconds worth of battle. Yes. And that's, that's, that's the point I was going to make when I started to interrupt you. And, and when I'm running my tabletop games, I always try to make a point of, like, reca- rehashing that and being like, yeah, this feels like it takes forever. This was 30 seconds of action. Yeah. Like, yeah. it all happens very, very quickly. Um, 
Anyway, so they won the first round. Uh, the Calarmines retreat. They've lost a, a few of their Narnian allies. There's losses on the side of Tyrion because they've lost three of the dogs. One's badly wounded. Uh, the bear dies. An yes. old death scene for Let's the bear. Let's talk about the bear's death scene. Uh-huh. Can you read it for me or do I need to read it? I have it right here. Uh, the bear lay on the ground, moving feebly. Then it mumbled in its throaty voice, bewildered to the last. I, I don't understand. Laid its big head down in the grass as quietly as a child going to sleep and never moved again. So at no point ever does the bear understand. Uh-huh. It has no concept of its own mortality. No, it's not about the... I think that it has no concept of the what has happened. Uh-huh. Is like the whole struggle, the Calarmines, the Narnians, Tash, Aslan, Tashland. I think he doesn't understand any of it. Uh-huh. Because in the last chapter, he was being yelled at by Shift for not knowing, you know, not understanding, trying to think. Uh-huh. And we have had this established image of the bears. It's like the thumb suckers and, you know. Yeah. The, the timid and, and and confused and just don't know what to do. Uh-huh. But, like, this bear literally dies with his thoughts being, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that is incredibly tragic from start to finish because we have the bear come to to try to see Aslan, he's there at the fire, he's being told all of these things and that Tashlan exists and that all of this is a thing. And then when he gets called on to come to aid the king, he responds uh-huh. and comes forward and dies with, I don't understand. And I think that that is like the the, the real tragedy of everything that's going on here is that no one at... The bonfire understands. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of deeper points we could make about that. I mean, like, hey, they're involved in a conflict that they don't really grasp, uh, which is why I mean, we get into later a lot of the Narnians just don't choose a side; they're just kind of there, and a bunch of them like disappear and slink away because they don't really understand what's happening or who they're fighting for. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which i don't know narnians are stupid i guess yeah like the bears have been point- painted as stupid throughout the series mm-hmm. i was trying to think of examples here of other bears in media <laughs> and whether or not like the stupid bear trope is a thing i mean goldilocks and the three bears they come in they're like oh someone ate my food someone yeah. slept in my bed yeah well the first two i thought of was uh, are, are winnie the pooh uh-huh. who is kind of a bumbling bumbling well-meaning kind of yeah you know idiot um hey <laughs> um then i thought of baloo from the jungle book uh-huh. uh who is as far as i remember also portrayed as kind of a dumb character uh, he's mean, smart of... and loyal and protective and uh, avoidant of whatever the bigger things are and he wants mowgli to stay with him because he wants a friend he doesn't want to send him back and he doesn't want to acknowledge the danger that mowgli could be yeah and then I was just like, I can't really think of any other bears from me. Like, like unless you're looking at, like, really, like, alternate universe personified stuff, like the Berenstain Bears or, like, yeah. um, I don't know. I don't think Teddy Ruxpin actually counts at all. Yeah. <laughs> but. What about, uh, um, Paddington Bear? Paddington, okay. I don't know Paddington, though. I haven't seen any <laughs> of Paddington's material. Or the not familiar with his work. Or the Mark Wahlberg one with the talking teddy bear. Whatever, yeah, whatever that movie was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as far as like realistic bears go, uh, which I think we have to exclude Pooh from that list. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, um, but getting back to your point, I. Yeah, I think that's a larger theme here where, like, a lot of the creatures here just don't understand. And that's, like, the the running theme of the ignorance, which is what we had in, like, the very first chapter with the lamb questioning everything. Yeah. Well, not the first chapter, but the first time that we're at the Stable Hill. Yeah. Where everybody's just like, yeah, I don't get it. And then everybody's so taken in by the idea, oh, yeah, Tash and Aslan are the same person and et cetera, et cetera. So, which would then make me question the goodness of Aslan. <laughs> 
Like, ultimately, ultimately, this comes down to as, like, this is, I, we don't know. <laughs> and it's the same thing I've brought up pretty much every chapter, and I feel like a broken record now. But, like, I feel like all of these Narnians who don't choose a side are going to be considered unfaithful. And whether they're punished or not is is going to be, like, Lewis's definition of that. But, like, I feel like they're going to miss out on something from Aslan, which I would consider a punishment, missing out on it, because they don't have knowledge. Because they're ignorant. Yeah. Because they listened to sources that they could consider to be accurate and reliable because they saw with their own eyes that Aslan was there. Yeah. And it conflicted with all the stories they'd heard about Aslan from four generations ago, the last time anyone saw him. Yeah. I mean, we're... I mean, this is, again, a thing I'd like to get into the wrap-up of this book. Were it anybody else... Or were it just some random author, not renowned theologian, C.S. Lewis, I would think that he was trying to do something very subversive here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and make some very damning statements about, like, Christianity as a whole. I know Lewis isn't doing that. Yeah. Um, so it, it is, it's interesting trying to read that through his lens. Yeah. And what he's trying to imply here. Because it's very easy to read this as being, like, no modern Christians are just stupid because they get taken in by any old thing that has Jesus printed on it. Yeah. But, you know, like (sighs) televangelist. Yeah. We're not going to get into that right now though. So, (laughs) um, then the dwarfs start. (laughs) So, uh, they start jeering and being racist toward the Calermines. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're kind of shouting from the peanut gallery. Tyrion calls out to them and it's just like, hey, why don't you join us and put your money where your mouth is? I know you're good fighters. Uh, and yeah, dwarfs reinforce their point. They're just like, yeah, no, we're, we're here because like we, no, we're here for us. We're here for the dwarves. Why are they still here? Yeah. And that's (laughs) the question I asked last time when it was like, why is this, why? They, they They just killed two Calermines on the road to Calermine and did, and came back. Yeah. And just came back? They they seem to be here solely to observe this battle and, like, mock both sides. Yes. And they're not actually doing anything. Um, but the uh, dwarves are here not for the Not yet. Dwarves. They're about to do something that really upsets me. Yeah. Um, so they start jeering from the sidelines. Then they hear the drum beats. Yes. So uh, Rish to Tarkin has got his drum to call for aid. Yeah. So well, maybe he doesn't, but... They're calling for reinforcements. Uh, nobody knows what this means except Tyrion, who's just like, "Aw, crap, there's reinforcements coming in. We mm-hmm. need to do something before they get here for sure. Uh, then they kind of lose hope. Uh, Tyrion gazes around despairingly. And I know we just brought this up, but I do want to kind of read this word for word. Several Narnians were standing with the Calermines, whether through treachery or an honest fear of Tashlan. Others were sitting still, staring, not likely to join either side. But there were fewer animals now. The crowd was much smaller. Clearly, several of them had just crept quietly away during the fighting. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the force just leaves. It's yeah. like they don't have a stake in either side. They, they don't, they, they're afraid or whatever, they don't care. Like, some are afraid of, of Tash and join the Calermines. Uh... And it's in, most of them have no loyalty, it seems, to Tyrion or Narnia or... Aslan. Aslan in general. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's... There you go. <laughs> it sucks. That's the state of Narnia at this time in the world. It, it hurts to see that, too. Uh-huh. It all but cares. it also feels like the ultimate completion of what we saw in Prince Caspian. Uh-huh. After all of the trees have gone to sleep and, like, everyone feels like Aslan abandoned Narnia. Yeah. That everyone feels like Aslan isn't even real, doesn't care. Yeah. And then Aslan shows up and has to basically force people to believe in him again by showing up. Yeah. By waking the trees, by bringing Bacchus back. Like, yeah. 
releasing the river god like all of these things should we reframe this like do we know that c.s lewis has like daddy issues or something and this is oh, yeah. like that we do know that for <laughs> sure 100 percent. we've talked about that he does uh and and this is just like you know this isn't an allegory for christianity at all this is just like absentee father uh yeah drama uh-huh <laughs> so maybe it's that um anyway and then there's hope again because they hear the thundering of hooves and with flared nostrils and, and, and uh, tossing manes, a uh, score of talking horses comes up over the hill and they are going to join the fight until... Until the dwarves murder them. Yep, until they all get shot. And they just, they kill outright all of the horses. Yep. Was this what took you back uh, last night when yeah. you were having an issue with the chapter? Yeah, Dora, the, the horses come over the hill. It's this really, like, triumphant moment. And then they all immediately get shot down by the dwarves. Um, yep, apparently dwarves are deadly archers. Uh, and you knew that. Eustace gets real pissed off, starts, like, insulting them, being like, dirty, filthy, treacherous little brutes. Um, Jewel asks if he should go kill them all. Yep. And Tyrion's just like, no. And he's like, nope, don't kill him, Jewel. Uh, Eustace, don't talk back to him. We're warriors. Either we use courteous words or hard knocks. And there's nothing else. Um, and the dwarves are jeering back, being like, what are you going to do, Eustace, etc., etc." And they say, uh, We don't want either of you to win. You're all humbugs. The yeah. dwarves are for the dwarves. Yep. So they're, I mean... It seems like they're, uh, I mean, they, they obviously don't want to pick sides. However, they're only actively working against Tyrion at the moment. They've done nothing to really hurt Calarmine's chances. Except so, to kill the Calarmines and not go to Calarmine yeah. where they were, quote unquote, like, sold to. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess they're they're trying to seize power here and hoping that Calarmine and Narnia both fall and they can do whatever the heck they want without uh, any kings coming in and lording over them. So, yeah, the dwarves kind of suck. I almost feel like I have to move on from it and just not engage with it because it really, really hurt. Like, I, I was a mess with that. Yeah. Um, have you heard this before? Have you gotten to the point where you're just like, I remember reading this, or is this new to you? I remember reading this. Okay. So you've probably finished this book. Yeah. And just, you know, blocked it out of your memory. Yeah. <laughs> um... So yeah, horses all die again. We don't really have hope for the rest of the battle. And <clears throat> so yeah, so Tyrion wants to get away from the stable, and they would and and Poggin questions the wisdom of leaving the stable where they have this protective wall, uh, but they also have this monster in the stable. So Tyrion loses all hope. He hears the drums of the Calarmine uh, reinforcements. Drums, drums in the deep. And he points to a white rock that hasn't yep. been described on the top of this hill at all ever before. Yep. Just Just there is rock. a white shining rock glimmering in the firelight. Yep. And they are going to rush off to that rock. Which apparently is, uh, this is going to be their last stand here. Uh, so they're going to go up there. He issues more orders being like, all right, Jill, you get up there on the left. Shoot as you go. Eagle, distract him. From the right. Whoever's, whoever else is with us, come in and you you have your orders. Uh, and then there's a, you know, second. Uh, and second... then we just jump into Jill's brain for the next battle. <laughs> yep. So we've seen we've seen the initial thing from Farsight's perspective. We've seen the second battle from Eustace's memory lapse. And now this third moment we jump into jill's mind and see this whole thing from jill's um uneducated perspective <laughs> on how to, how battles go yeah because that she she doesn't realize that they were only as successful as they were because of her actions with farsight distracting the calamines and then she also doesn't realize that they are literally being surrounded as more and more calamines just flood in that the, the num doesn't matter how many they kill they just keep coming they keep coming they keep coming yeah and that's because the calamine reinforcements have arrived yeah uh so we a lot of perspective and shifts Tyrion calls for the retreat to the rock and they rush that way 
Yeah. Because the enemy is reinforced, and that's the end of the chapter. Oh. And I hate this chapter. <laughs> I was kind of you kind of rushed forward there. Um, yeah, a lot done. of perspective shifts. Uh, yeah, Jill rushes in. They seem like they have a defensible position. Then she starts slowly realizing, as you said, hey, every time we kill one, there's another two to take its place. You know, there there's basically no hope here. It seems like you know they're they're literally between a rock and a hard place. Uh, what are we gonna do? And they realize that the reinforcements, however many they might be, had shown up. They're surrounded. Um, and then the next chapter is called "Through the Stable Door," so maybe they go in there. Yeah, we do have at some point in this chapter, Rishta saying that they, you had said earlier, Rishta says that he wants to throw them into the stable and burn it and let Tash deal with them, you know? Yeah. And with the next chapter being called through the stable door, I have a feeling that that's basically what's going to happen. They're going to force them in. Yeah. And they're going to confront whatever's in there. That said, my artwork for this chapter is the artwork of Tyrion standing there surrounded by the dogs. Yeah. My artwork of the next <laughs> chapter is a bunch of, like... Fancy clad people. Fascinating. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens there. Yep. Cool. Maybe they get sacrificed. They go meet Tash. Uh, maybe Aslan shows up at some point and does something. That would be weird. Uh, maybe you know, Peter and Edmund finally like come on through. Who, who knows? Who, who knows? knows? We got five chapters to wrap this up. We do. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um. Yeah. So uh, emotions aside, <laughs> let's go ahead and continue on with our uh, episode here. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't cover? I need to dive right in, like further into. Uh, my notes are loyal mice. Remember Pattertwig, the bear. Suddenly, Farsight's perspective. Dwarves, horses, Tash. Those are all my notes. So. Yeah. Um. The only thing that I wanted to point out, uh, as far as theming and motifs go, is do we think there's some kind of parallel here between the stable and, like, uh, you know, the the holiest of holies uh, in the temple? In well, I think that there's a distinct imagery there where all of the Narnians cry out for Shift to stand between them and Tashlan. Yeah. To protect them. That was imagery in the last chapter that jumped into my mind, but we didn't really touch on in discussion, is that it was very reminiscent of calling for a high priest to intercede between them and the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Um, but being requested by the people because they are afraid. Yeah. And it reminds me of moments uh, like with after the Exodus during the 40 years wandering before the Israelites entered the Holy Land. Uh-huh. And in, in like Old Testament where they're calling for like a priesthood. They're calling for, you know, all of these things or whatever. Anyway. I don't know. You yeah. know, like because... Some of it is like, oh yeah, like this is this is a society that has always had direct connection to Aslan ever since the first book. Uh-huh. And they're asking for a separation now. Yeah. Because they're afraid. And it's and it and it could be a critique on the contemporary priesthood of the Catholic Church saying that you have to intercede through a priest in order to receive forgiveness or redemption or direction or any access to God through a priesthood. Like it could be something as contemporary as the church, uh, like capital C church, or it could be something more reminiscent of like the diaspora or something like some other time in which, you know, so yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, it really kind of, it's all of the Narnians giving up their access to Aslan. Not that they've had access to Aslan, in any meaningful sense, but it's them giving up the idea that they could talk to Aslan because all the way up until the moment Ginger Cat goes in, they all want to go in. They all want to see Aslan face to face because they all believe that they can. And then when Ginger Cat comes running out of the stable, they all immediately go, shift, protect us. Yeah. Stand between us and this, this Aslan. Yeah, it just made me think of that uh, where I think there's a pretty 
obvious mirroring of the image here where shift gets thrown into the stable uh you know the earth shakes there's this bright light etc etc you know in you know the moment uh at jesus's death when the veil tears and like the sky darkens and the earth shakes and yeah it's kind of a reverse of that kind of imagery yeah where like we we have brought the divine to earth with this yeah like there's something has broken or like a dam has been you know that has been holding back this flood is broken and yeah whatever whatever was over there is now here yeah so it's a lot though it's really a lot this chapter is really heavy yep and intense Right for uh, for a little bit of a ride the next five chapters, I feel like. We're going to... Yeah. There's going to be a lot of stuff. Yeah. Cool. Would you like to move on to the next segment in our uh, podcast, Kristen? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. (laughs) What do we do in our next segment? So as we... um, So as we were reading through the chapters, we selected five sentences for a summary. We also selected five sentences for a rewrite, which is our creative activity to try to tell a new story, but using sentences from this chapter... Sometimes we can find themes uh, or, like, intense uh, perspectives that we didn't really notice before. And sometimes we don't. We just create silly or intense or dramatic scenes. Yeah. I believe I read my summary first, so you can read your rewrite first this time. Cool. Here's mine. I tried so hard to go through this and come up with, like, a little silly fun rewrite for this chapter, and it's really hard. (laughs) With the sentences that are available to me. It's very difficult. So I didn't do that. Uh, Here is my rewrite. The children from the very first had hated the sound. Eusists could never remember what happened in the next two minutes. But there were fewer animals now. The crowd was now smaller. Boom, boom, baba boom, it went. The drum had done its work. Okay. Cool. You want to tell us about it? Um, I don't know. I've just had the image in mind of some dark ritual happening. Yeah. And like the 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 imagery of the drums was uh, fun. Yeah. Cool. Go, go ahead. <laughs> well, here's mine. It was so lovely that it made you want to cry. But it was already time to be thinking of other things. You can't take us in. You, you're you just as big humbugs as the other lot. Then she could hear Tyrion's voice crying. Back. Okay. So in yeah. this one, I'm, I'm saying you can't take us in is Tyrion saying that because ah, so he's the one crying back, you know, don't, yeah. don't take us in, but really yeah. changes the themes and the, the, yeah. the storyline of the it chapter. Really yep. <laughs> cool. So you're just as big humbugs as the other lot. Never thought humbugs was in, uh, a noun. Humbugs. Yeah. Yeah. You're a humbug and you say humbug. Humbug to you. I'm not a humbug. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, Kristen. It's a type of bug. It's a humbug. <laughs> of course. It's a, is that similar to like... Like a love bug or... Similar to a lightning bug where like instead of like light, they just hum. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I don't know what the origin of humbug is. I just know that it's <sighs> it's a expletive of like, oh, humbug. But yeah. it's also like a noun that you are a humbug like scrooge is a humbug that's a noun now we know uh shall we move on to our last segment then certainly all right um i'm gonna have to like pause for a minute to emotionally recenter myself Uh, so that we can do this cool and we are back so we have uh our next segment cool so in the next segment Oh, wait, no, that's the Calarmine drums. Hey, stop. <laughs> no drums. Uh, this is the final conflict. It's the final <gasps> conflict. <laughs> Where in this one, I thought it would be fun to, uh, well, 
you know, it's really weird if this is the first episode of this book you're listening to, so you know what we're doing. But I thought it would be fun to go through and have an ultimate drag down, drag, knock down, drag out. Yeah, fight between everybody uh, in the entire Narnian series and see who comes out on top. And for the past uh, 10 chapters, we've been doing that, matching up various random characters, seeing who wins. We are now moving on to the uh, quarterfinals. Yep. So, Kristen, what is our next quarterfinal matchup? All right. We need a location. Okay. Um, but in this one, our, fi- uh, our finalists are Bree and Edmund. Bree and Edmund. Okay. Fascinating. And do you have a number between 1 and 10 for us? Uh, Well, there's one that we haven't used yet. Well, let's just go ahead and do that one. All right. What is 10, that? 2. The number is 2. All right, uh, we are just in uh, the Narnian forest. We're in the we're in we're in the woods. Okay. Uh, you know, time time and place kind of irrelevant. We're just kind of in the woods. Uh, Which I would argue gives Edmund the advantage over Bree because Bree was raised in Kellerman. That's very true. So we have Bree. Obviously, know who that is. Uh, I I forget Bray how to. War horse. Yeah, I forget how to say his full name. Brenny Winnie Henny Who or something. Yeah, like that. something stupid. Uh, <laughs> Rude. Don't make fun of people's names. But Bree, proud warhorse versus Edmund, a uh, proud candy eater and king of Narnia. King of Narnia <laughs> led a charge against. In they were in the same book together. Yes. At the peak of Edmund's military, like Peter's off at war with the giants, and Edmund leads the army into Arkenland to Correct. defeat the Calamines. Correct. Uh, so it is entirely possible that these two have met before, yeah. which is uh, not something we can say about many of our matchups. Uh, however, yeah, um, this is this is a again a pretty close one, I think, because they are both uh, war hardened veterans. They've both been in battles. Uh, they both know how to fight. Uh, they're both pretty headstrong, uh, confident. Some some might say arrogant individuals. Uh, I would say there's almost a, uh, a lot of parallel between the personalities of the two, uh, where they're both, uh, they start out both being very full of themselves. Oh yeah. Um, they're, they're very paralleled, um, in their journeys. It, that being said, it in the forest, I do agree. I, I think Edmund would have a little bit of a, a land advantage here because most of Bree's experience was being in Calarmine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a Narnian horse. He did group was born in Narnia, as far as we know. Uh, yeah. We don't know when he came to Calarine. But he was kidnapped. Yeah, was kidnapped. Uh, Edmund, uh, obviously very familiar with Narnia, uh, the woods and the ways and whatnot. I think the obvious advantage here is that Edmund could just, you know, climb a tree. <laughs> yeah. And then what's Bree going to do? All Edmund's got to do is climb up in a tree and shoot an arrow down or something, then, you know, Bree's kind of out of luck. Uh, Edmund, I feel like, is also going to be a lot more maneuverable in a forest than a horse is going to be. That's not really their favored terrain. Yeah. Uh, you know, Edmund's got weaponry, he's got armor. I think one-on-one... So enough on one... about Edmund. Tell us about <laughs> Bree. <laughs> uh, I mean, Bree has obviously the size and strength advantage. He, yeah. You know, he's going to outweigh Edmund by a thousand pounds. Uh, I think out in the middle of the desert, this would be a lot closer. Yeah. Uh, especially since we know Edmund isn't necessarily an archer, and it would have to be a close quarters melee battle. Yeah. And... And Bree could use the, his yeah, weight and size. Yeah, and... To, to, to do that. However, it I think being in the forest kind of shifts the entire thing. Yeah. And with Edmund's dexterity and maneuverability, I'm pretty sure he's going to win this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't have any arguments or any other thoughts to add because you really kind of <laughs> um, exhaustively discussed that. Yeah. Yourself. <laughs> So, yeah, I just wish we had more from Bree. Like we had. Really some glad kind of that I was or... here for this. Yeah, well, you don't <laughs> love this segment anyway. Um, you you had a lot to say in the last one. You were really involved. Yep, that's because I needed to make sure that you know it wasn't Corin versus Shasta in the last battle. Well, here's the problem: who's who won the last fight, Kristen? Lucy. Lucy. Yeah. So in the semifinals, in uh-huh. this side, we're going to have Lucy 
versus Edmund. And Lucy's going to destroy <laughs> him. That's that's this that's going to be 100%. 100%. The Holy Spirit's just going to walk through to the final. It's going to activate. Like from from Lucy to Trumpkin to Shasta to Edmund, like she's just going to breeze through <laughs> to the final fight. The question is who is she fighting? Yeah. Um I don't know. Lucy and Edmund's going to be a gay discussion No. That's... No, Lucy wins. <laughs> no, no, we'll get there when we get there. Anyway, we'll so get there when we get there. So Edmund moves on. Um, I'm curious as to who we have on the other side and who's going to get through. I know Peter's not in this at all. Correct. Uh, so we're not going to have just a final fight between the four Pevensies. Yeah, no. Uh, on the other side, our next battle. Would you like to look at what that is yes. after? What is the next battle? All right, the next one's going to be King Frank versus Corin. Ooh, okay. Two two old kings in Narnia. Corin. Well, well. Arkenland. Yeah. Corin's probably a very a very old descendant of King Frank. They are related in some way. I don't know. And then after that, Puddle Glum and Glenstorm. Ooh, that well, that's that's gonna be a fight for the ages, oh, right yeah. there. That's the one I'm looking forward. to. <laughs> All right. Cool. Um. Sweet. Edmund moves on. We'll discuss what happens next week in more quarterfinals. Kristen, would you like to finish us up here? All right, wait. I gotta make notes. Okay. In number two, and that was Edmund defeating Bree. Uh-huh. All righty. Thank you so much for joining us today as we discussed chapter 11 of The Last Battle. Join us next week as we discuss chapter 12 through the stable door. And in the meantime, you can interact with us on social media at Chronically Podcast uh, on Facebook and Instagram at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your fan art of Farsight, the eagle attacking some calamines and pecking at their eyes um, at Chronically Podcast at gmail.com. I was going to say what Shift sees as he uh, goes into the stable. Ah, well, <laughs> there's that. Your fan art of what shift sees as he enters the stable <laughs> at chroniclypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash chroniclypodcast if you want to do that. And until next time, never trust a dwarf. <laughs> um, Unless it's like Poggin. We... I don't know. It, like It's such a weird sentiment it's the whole like it's yeah. it's very it's a very very consistent like absurd racism towards dwarves like i don't know it's just like a consistent and absurd racism towards dwarves through the whole thing like well, especially only, the black dwarves only the black dwarves anyway so <laughs> until next time uh don't be a humbug and let loose your dogs of war oh yes Bye. Can I finish a thought? Holy crap. <laughs> I am this chapter upset me in so many different levels. I'm sorry. I am agitated. Okay. Hi. You can go ahead. I'll be quiet over here. Cool. Look at you criticizing artwork without actually fully investigating. Yeah, I know. I, I this is not a uh, a Narnian book illustration art review podcast. But <laughs> except when it is. Did we read the same chapter? Yeah. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I, yes. Okay. Alrighty. What am I doing? Taking us out. Oh! Then I thought of uh, Mowgli from A Jungle Book, which I, who Mowgli I think... is the boy. No. Baloo is the bear. Cut that out. That was stupid. Because this is chapter 11 of 16. And knowing the pacing is going to quicken. And knowing that this is the chapter in which the pace quickens!
a 30-foot ladder and trying to put it into a truck bed. Would you like to go help them? <laughs> I think I'm okay. Join us next week when we throw Nerf darts at airplanes. <laughs> I don't know how effective that's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> that's why Mark Brooks uses it as an illustration for how stupid people are for getting killed by zombies. Says it's a person getting killed by a zombie is the equivalent of a jet plane being shot out of the sky by a Nerf dart. Yeah. Anyway.